Thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring Does Not Compute. DigitalOcean is just the easiest cloud platform to run and scale your applications. They have effortless administration tools, robust compute, storage, and networking services, and just an all-in-one cloud platform to help developers and their teams save time for running and scaling their applications. DigitalOcean offers predictable and affordable pricing, so you can leave those complex pricing structures behind. You always know what your business is paying for, you get industry-leading price performance with a flat pricing structure, and that's in all of their global data center regions. I and Sean have both been using DigitalOcean for our side projects, and I use them for client work as well, and they've just always been so awesome with their pricing. I remember when they came out with the $5 a month VPSs, and since then, they've just always had the best deals for high-performing solid-state VPSs. So if uh, you're looking to do the same thing, well, you're in luck. You can actually get started today with a free $100 credit that's at do.co slash does not. Just takes a few minutes to get up and running. And again, that's do.co slash does not, and you'll get $100 of credit towards a flexible and scalable hosting solution for your next application. God. It's hot there. Oh, God. A little bit. My poor yeah. my poor little CRV. 11 years old, 140,000 miles. The AC finally decided to quit on me today. That's not great. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of selection bias because, like, of course it's going to die on the hottest day because that's when I'm using it. But still doesn't feel great. Still, you know, sweating through my shirt in a perfect diagonal across the uh the belt <laughs> right yeah <laughs> it it's a bummer because i have a, a portable air conditioning unit for my apartment but it doesn't really do a whole lot and our apartments are like weatherized so if it gets hot inside it's, it takes forever to cool down so the air conditioner is just on and i have fans blasting but to do the recording obviously i can't have an air conditioning unit sitting next to me so I'm just looking out the window and watching the the wind <laughs> on the tree. Wishing you were out there. <clears throat> Imagining what that might feel like right now. We we have one AC unit. We just keep it in the bedroom and we just keep the door closed in there and we call that the ice dungeon. So we just we retreat to the ice dungeon. I've tried that with mine, but it doesn't really make that much of a difference. Really? I don't know. I feel like it used to. I don't know what, what's going on with it, but... Yeah, it's terrible. And I turned the on my on my MacBook Pro. I use iStat menus, and I turned the temperature sensor on, so I have a temperature sensor uh, always in my menu bar. And right now, she's running at 145 degrees. Good God! But when I'm running, I use um, what is it? Uh, Mix Test Watch. I think it's actually called. Uh, it just whenever whenever I change, uh, it's like Guard for Rails or something. So like whenever the file system detects a change, it just runs stale tests again. And I mean, my, my, my computer will get up to 155, 160 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh yeah. I've definitely noticed my fan spinning up, just doing normal tasks. And I don't think it's, it's not under any more load. It's just it's so hot. It's ridiculous, man. I wonder if I'm being throttled. Like I, you would have to assume that at a certain temperature, I don't know what the temperature is, but the CPU is going to get throttled. You're using a um, MacBook Pro, right? With a screen plugged in. Clam- uh, yes, Are you yeah. using clamshell so, mode or? Yeah, sometimes when it gets really hot, I open it up, or sometimes I put it upside down on my desk, so the hot part is up. (laughs) 
<laughs> I've done that because I just have one cord. So to power everything, like to, to plug in my, everything just comes through one USB-C cord. So my, my audio interface, my keyboard, my monitor, my webcam, like microphone, everything comes through one USB-C. And so the power too? It's really easy to Sorry, just, and the, yeah, and the power. Yeah. Yeah, so it's really easy just to flip the thing. I have like a a U like a base, uh I can't remember I'll put the brand in the show notes. But it's like a little docking station. So I plug my computer into that and that has all the USB ports and the HDMI port and um it has a pass power pass through. So I have a a MacBook Pro, I think it's a forty five watt base that just stays plugged in under my desk because I have a power strip taped upside down under my desk. Yeah, so that's always plugged in. So everything gets delivered to my computer through one cord. So it's really easy for me to flip it upside down if it gets hot and I get scared. <laughs> Thanks, Johnny Ive. Thanks for that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been using Windows a lot um, just because my tower doesn't have that problem. It stays a nice 70, 70 degrees even when I'm running tests constantly. And it's nice. I mean, I you know, I have a... I think it's a six core Ryzen i5. And so, it, I mean, it handles it handles just fine. Sometimes I feel like my MacBook Pro gets a little bit sluggish when I have like Docker going and I'm running on my tests, but the desktop just powers through everything. It, it just, Windows is, for me, especially in, in a dev context, it's like death by a thousand paper cuts. Oh yeah, especially if you're trying to do anything that's Unix-y based. Now, I mean, I've been using... WSL, like Ubuntu on, on Windows. And that, I mean, it took me 10 minutes to set up. So within 10 minutes, I had Ubuntu and I was I was um, working on that. So I had my HyperShell set to run bash.exe by default. So it just, whenever I opened a, sh- uh, a terminal, I'm in actual Linux, like real Linux. It's just that, and that works fine. So I also have Docker for Windows installed. And in my bashrc, I just set the Docker host to my um the the url and the port that docker for windows is running so everything's really seamless i can use kitematic um it it feels like i'm mostly on like a unix machine i'm just in windows except for maybe the biggest one right now is i use elixir ls for vs code and that gives me intellisense so like past like language you know completing like core standard library stuff uh, Elixir LS will compile your application and you actually get IntelliSense on the code that you write. So it's like a real IDE or it feels like a real IDE. That's cool. Well, that's busted. That's busted with WSL. It doesn't work. And it drives me crazy because obviously with Elixir, in, um, documentation is first class citizen. So I write lots of documentation, but I don't have any access to it while I'm writing code while I'm using Windows. And I mean, that's maybe a nitpicky thing, but to me, that's a big deal. That's pretty important. But uh, yeah, I mean, in general, I've heard good things about the Linux on Windows thing. I haven't had a chance to try it yet, but I will say you said bash.exe. That just sounds so wrong to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird. So you can actually run uh, bash.exe and then you pass a flag of dash C and then a string and it'll pass that string that's basically just any old command. It'll pass it right into bash for you. So what's interesting is that when I'm trying to say like I do bash.exe, because I tried messing with, I think it was called DOS key. It's like macros. So you can create macros that just expand to something else. So uh, I tried tricking Elixir LS. So when it tries to run Elixir, um, I tried writing a macro that would auto expand to something else that would run it within WSL. But what's weird is that it seems like Part of at least part of my path isn't available when I run bash.exe, but it is when I open a terminal somehow. I don't really, I haven't really dug into it, but 
Oh, uh, yeah, because the terminal, like the Windows command, you know, terminal has its own, does have its own path variables. So, yeah. So WSL has this thing called uh, interoperability. Interop- Ability, interoperability, I don't, I don't know, something like that. I can put that link in show notes. It's called interop. Yeah, well, yeah, interop. But they also call it interoperability something. I don't know, I'll link it. But yes, you're right, interop. We'll, we'll call it interop. So it has interop. So what it does is actually injects the Windows path into uh, the WSL stuff. So you could actually run like notepad.exe from within Linux and it would open notepad on the Windows machine. Oh, okay. And for path names and stuff, do you have to use forward slashes or these backslashes like how does it interpret that for directories i so like anytime you're in wsl it's it's just like unix okay so i didn't even know that the windows path is to me backwards it was like i i looked at some of the paths when i was in powershell i was like what is happening <laughs> oh man no that's that's how i learned cd slash all that stuff yeah yeah so it it does that it injects the windows path into into the WSL stuff and it works, you know, it works pretty okay. So one thing I tried too was using chocolatey, which is similar to homebrew, but for windows. And so I was like, well, I could just install Elixir on windows side, but then I, it still didn't really work quite right because then there, I had like a dependency issue. I couldn't figure out how to get NMake to work. I didn't even like, you know, so there's like tooling issues. So I basically have to set my tooling up twice and then I have to figure out, version management for Elixir. So obviously if I'm compiling it for uh, Elixir LS on one side, Elixir should probably be the same version. The pendency should probably be the same version and all that. So I think I could technically technically make it work. But at that point, I, so what I do is I try to take a little bit of time up front every day before I actually get into work and try to make it smooth. And I just work until I get mad at <laughs> it. And then I just switch back to my Mac. <laughs> that's a, that's a productive cycle. Yeah. No, it'll be interesting to see, uh, how that progresses you know if there's enough people using it and motivated to make the experience better i think over time it'll probably just get better just through gradual improvements but yeah i mean it's certainly compelling you know that i have a tower that i can upgrade any so like it comes back i think for a lot of people it just keeps coming back to that so like the price premium for apple products the hardware is great but they've been having some issues and uh refreshes have been lagging a little bit you know so now we finally have uh, a MacBook Pro you can get with a decent GPU in it, but that wasn't a thing before. And, you know, so they're like, oh, you can plug an eGPU in it. But in my mind, if I'm traveling and I might want to play a game, I'm not going to lug around a GPU in a, in a metal enclosure, you know? Yeah. And really that's not a great experience anyways. No, no. Uh, I heard it's not really that seamless either. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty new, but it's not that seamless, but it's, I mean, just like the idea that in my tower, if I want another hard drive, I got space for three more, you know? So I have like a six hard drive bay. I have three in there. <laughs> I have a terabyte. Um, so I have a ter- terabyte platter drive and I have two solid state drives. My windows installs on an M.2, like directly on the motherboard, <laughs> you know, and then I have Linux on an SSD, a 500 gigabyte SSD and it's just in the tower. So if I want to add another distro, I could just slap another hard drive in there. Like, it's not going to matter if I want to swap out my GPU. I buy a GPU. You know, there's a they make a Mac. They made a Mac that could do all that. It's called the Mac Pro. They did. <laughs> we can only hope that some return to form happens soon on this. Right. Yeah. That's that's the that's the thing is like 
Even, yeah, so they had that, but it was still crazy expensive. Like, oh yeah, more than twice what I paid for my tower. Oh no question, yeah. So that, I struggle with that a little bit. I struggle with that. So I mean, like Paul recently, his keyboard just went out, so he was out without a computer, a work computer for a week again. And there were and our pro, well, I mean that was the last time. It was the only time it happened, but it wasn't that long ago. It was on a relatively new computer, and we were two programmers, and so you know that's half of the workforce not being able to work suddenly. Uh, for Design Collective, I don't know. There's, I just have sometimes get paranoid about uh, that. So yeah, I've been. I have Ubuntu on an SSD that's set up. I can run Design Collective right now on it, and I have it running on Windows. So if anything happens to my laptop and I hit hard drive somehow, uh, I'm still able to work. Yeah, nice. I I do my most of my development on my uh, just got a 27 inch plain old iMac here from I don't know 2015. Let's see. Late 2015 iMac, and then I got my old MacBook Pro with all the ports <laughs> that mm. I, uh, <laughs> where the screen, screen starting to get delaminated and have kind of issues, but still kick in. Still really good, good machine. Still really enjoy that. I'll be uh, using it tomorrow when I'm at the mechanic, waiting for my AC to get fixed. <laughs> That's, yeah. I, I'm going to try and milk this, this 13, it's a 13 inch MacBook Pro. It's 2016, I think. It's a non touch bar version. I'm trying to milk it as much as I can, but I'm talking my hands on it right now and it's hot. Yeah. She's, she's warm. Palms are sweaty. So, uh, they were sweaty before, but now it just made things worse. Knees weak. Yeah. But that's just because I trained two days in a row after taking two months off. (laughs) Yeah. How's that going? Get back into it. Uh, my shoulder's good. I don't know if I mentioned that, but I hurt my shoulder and that's why I took two months off. And, uh, so I had too much break and my, my ribs healed. So that's also good. So I'm feeling better. Awesome structurally so yeah it's it's going good it's it's going it's going pretty well it's good a break from programming so very i can tell I, w- I could tell that when i was taking a break uh i would get frustrated a lot easier with what i was working on. i didn't really have that outlet i suppose so now i have it back and it's it's nice sometimes you just gotta hit things yeah or try to not get strangled by your sensei <laughs> that'll keep your mind off things yeah it's for, it certainly will so i mean last time we talked uh, we so we haven't talked at all. I don't think uh, since we recorded. No, we've we've both been like heads down. Yeah, just working on stuff. So how's that? How's that Nuxt stuff going? How's that Vuic stuff going? I think last time we had talked, you had mentioned that you were having uh, some some issues with slow boot time and things like that. Yeah, so that's kind of where I had left off last week, and that's exactly right. I was having I was taking a really deep dive into dynamic module registration in Vuex, and it wasn't working out super great. And I figured out, so I started learning how to use, Chrome has this great uh, developer tool tab called Performance. And what it'll do is you hit refresh, and then from the initial page load all the way through to like the page finishes loading and stops doing stuff, it will record every basically JavaScript call and animation and all kinds of other stuff and kind of graph them out and it's actually really nice because JavaScript is inherently single-threaded. And so even though you're doing all these async stuff in the background, it's really happening sequentially, right? Mm-hmm. So it makes its really nice timeline and it just shows you exactly how long everything takes, the frames per second that, you know, things, the frames per second that the screen is updating at while it's doing stuff. And so like during that initial page load where I was getting all these messages and instantly up all the state, it was like, zero frames per second. And I was like, okay, well, there, there's the issue. <laughs> and it's cool because it it shows you the hierarchy. Okay, here's how long the top call function call t- took. And then each subsequent call within that, it just 
kind of segments it down further and further and breaks it down. So you can see exactly where the time is being spent. It shows you in milliseconds exactly how long it's taking. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And so it turns out that uh, register module, which is the the view call to that registers a dynamic module, is really, really, really slow. Now, I haven't actually had a chance to benchmark it in production mode. I was just doing it in dev mode. And as I'll talk about later, dev mode is really slow. Um, so I'm actually curious. I want to go back and try in production mode and see if it's even usable. Regardless, it was taking a long time. Like it was taking like 10 or 12 seconds for the page to even just be responsive, right? That's 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 an odd starter. Yeah, that's interesting. I think you mentioned too that every time that register module happened, it would rebuild the state tree, which would then cause... Uh, a blocking render, Basically, right? yeah. I, I actually dug right into the, 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 the function register module is only a few lines long, long in the Vuex source. And yeah, basically because of the way, because when you register a module, it has to, it creates new getters and it has to basically rebuild those getters in like the root store. And mm-hmm. so they just naively just like reset the whole thing. And so you can see, and actually I noticed the longer the more modules I registered and the bigger the state tree got, the slower it got. So the first few ones are really, really fast okay. and it got slow, 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 right? I could watch it in the console do the loading. So that was that was a big eye-opener for me. I didn't expect it that to be a problem. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm actually in GitHub right now looking at looking for the, the source. Yeah, it's under um, uh, it's under store js or store slash index.js something like that okay and so i was like okay modules are not going to work for me that's just that's just untenable and i also had this issue where so as i mentioned i don't know if i mentioned this before but the way i was dispatching uh websocket messages was i basically wrapped them up in an action and dispatch the actions to the store or to the module i should say and then that would do some stuff and then end up committing mutations to the store and actually do the state changes. But mm-hmm. I have a lot of ancillary stuff that that I also need to keep track of that's not just purely in the store. Um, I've got objects that I need to keep track of that are not can't be represented can't be represented in a, as an observable, right? I've got WebRTC peers, I've got audio devices, I've got okay, yeah, I've got all this extra stuff that just doesn't lend itself to to view and Vuex. So what I ended up doing was I just started making plain old classes, like just going back to my object-oriented roots and just being like, okay, here's a console. And then I just pass it to store. And then it basically just, instead of like registering modules, it actually just sets and gets, like it just commits mutations directly. So instead of using actions, I'm just using plain old functions and classes as actions, basically. And I just commit the mutations directly from there. Uh, I see. Yeah, that's, I mean, that seems like a perfectly nice way to solve that problem. Yeah, and then I get the ability to add any kind of ancillary stuff that I need onto those classes and just pass it in and pass it out and keep track of all this extra state that I need to. And it's going to be way more flexible, I think, for that. Yeah, I mean, and then, and then too, your your classes are hyper-focused to the, the job that they're trying to solve. And it's not like you're trying to, like you said, you have some things that don't really lend itself to just a key value store representation. So it would, yeah, it, it makes sense that it's kind of like a highly, ta- it's like more custom tailored to what you actually need than you know trying to, to to 
shove things just into a tree representation. So I found I found the source of registered uh, register module, and then it also calls install module, which calls uh, view dot set, which for sure would uh, cause a bunch of changes. It would just cascade through the tree. So that makes that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's crazy that it's that slow though. You said like what twelve seconds? Yeah, it was it was ridiculous. Wow. So. Yeah, so that was a big, and so what I did was I did that. Only another thing I can do, so these individual classes that I'm making, they also have to be able to, in addition to responding to stuff from the WebSocket, they also have to be able to push stuff back to the WebSocket. Right? I have to be able to push messages to the server. And so that stuff, I, I haven't done it yet, but I can just throw that in there. And then I have this little, nice little componentized, uh, you know, client class for each individual thing, and I can just pass it right into my view module and just deal with the client directly you know the module can just just keep track of that the, the, excuse me the view component you know can pass it in as a prop and just use the real honest to god class for you know the way it was meant to be used so instead of just dealing with the sockets and stuff directly in my view components now i've got this nice little uh class that represents you know what i want it to yeah this seems i'm looking i just googled uh view vuex websocket and it seems like a couple of solutions are they just kind of bolt their own stuff. They, they kind of add it to the dollar sign uh, namespace on view. <laughs> so you could do like, where'd it go? This dot socket or something like that. That's actually what but I'm doing. It, I'm, yeah, just, I mean, I'm using a view yeah. plugin. I just inject the socket into, into every component for right now. That's awesome. I mean, yeah, that sounds like it would work work just fine. Probably, you know, like you say, it's it's better... It's actually designed like the the class that you designed is better designed to solve the problem than a generic store. Yeah, and when I did that, and the load times went to two seconds, right? So that's you know that was a pretty big improvement right off the bat. And again, we're still in development mode here. That was like two seconds down from twelve seconds. Sure. So that's like uh, you said development mode, so that's that's doing all the logging and all the warns and all that stuff, which is right. So much when I slower. say development mode, I say I'm meaning when I in Nuxt, I do npm run dev, and it runs okay. the Express server, um, but with with Vuex in development mode, which means it has all those those hooks and checks to make sure you don't you know you're doing mutations sure. correctly. Um, and when I say production yeah. mode, what I actually do is I have to do npm run build, which basically just compiles and minifies everything. It makes the bundles, then npm runs start, and that just does the same thing, except the serving up compiled assets at that point that are you know cleaned. Sure, the asset pipeline of sorts step sure. where it kind of builds everything, and then after everything's built, you can start. And it I up. can do that because it's a single page app. I'm not using the Nuxt you know server side rendering or anything like that. Yeah, that's cool. Have you tried it in prod mode yet? Well, okay, so we'll get to that. So we got a few more, a couple more steps here. Okay, <laughs> okay, then. So I got down to two seconds and that was great. But when I dug into the performance tab on Chrome, it was still spending a lot of time in each mutation. So like during this initial configuration where we're setting up the state, there's a lot of assignment that's happening, right? I do state dot whatever equals something. And I like I might have 20 or 30 calls like that where I'm setting up each individual field uh, on the state. And every time you mm-hmm. do that, it has to propagate the changes to everything, right? And recompute. And so that's not really efficient at all. And so what I found was that actually just by, I just use object assign, object.assign, and just wholesale replace the state objects. Like I took the state object, and then I just basically 
reassign all the fields on it. And then when I was done mutating that one little state object, then I would assign it back to the store. And so that way, instead of doing, you know, 25 little updates, it would just do one update because I'm replacing the whole object in right. one call. And yeah, that was immediately apparent as well. I got it down to about one second, just, you know, cut the time in half just by just by changing that. Functionally, it's all the same. But the fact that they didn't have to crawl the tree every time and and update everything was was a big time save. Yeah, and that makes it all that makes a lot of sense. I mean, because you don't need anything to be reactive up until that point. You're just collecting data from uh, your different sources and compiling the main thing that you need. So it it's almost like you're doing your own little uh, npm build there before you <laughs> you do everything else. You're, you're compiling. I like when you're describing incremental changes so you pull something in and you set it and then that that kind of propagates all the changes it's almost like a lightning bolt right so like the main lightning bolt hits and then all the little branches come out and so you're basically having to do that every for every time the that you're setting up a piece of data and you said that you had quite a bit right yeah absolutely yeah and what's interesting was in my head you think of and again this goes back to kind of thinking about the like flux and react and immutable stuff you think of a mutation as like a single atomic action where like state comes in, you modify it and you return the state and then the update happens. But in a functional world, that's how it works, right? You can't, you can't mutate something that's passed into you. It's immutable, but with view, everything's reactive and observable. So even when you're in your mutation, it actually has side effects, right? The side effects are happening while you're doing the mutation. And that was like, once I realized, got my head out of that, that mindset where like, oh, this is not really one action. This is really uh, just a convenient place to modify my state. It has nothing, it has no guarantees in terms of atomicity, right? Right, yep. So that was where I figured that out from. Um, and finally, so that was still in dev mode. I got one, one second load times roughly. And then finally I was like, oh, let me try actually building this and running it. And then it was basically instant like 0.2 seconds or something i mean you, you i added a loading screen while i was doing this and then by the end of it like you can't even see a load screen it just flashes for a split second and then the page just loads in so fast and that just quelled all my all my fears that <laughs> this was gonna be a problem so it's it's actually really 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 fast now it's it's pretty cool and which is great because for phones and stuff now and i know it's also going to be performing on there right so I, I'm not I'm not yeah. too upset that I spent all that time to find oh actually production mode helps a lot but I'm still glad that I did it. No, I mean that's that's good learning. That's good experience. That's firsthand learning. You know, it's it's funny because like the first project you jumped into is probably a little bit more compl- complex than I've had to deal with mostly. Uh, I mean I've done a lot of stuff with. Um, view in design collective, but I haven't really done a whole lot of stuff in terms of, I haven't had so much data in the store that it was affecting things on a render, you know? So, uh, it's when you come in and then you're asking me questions. I'm like, I don't know, man, I've never had that problem before. So I can, I can Google, but I don't have any firsthand experience on how to, um, approach something like that. But it's cool to like, listen to your process of narrowing things down and, and getting it figured out. And one thing that's interesting is, so I'm not, the only thing I'm really using Vuex for right now is just storing state and mutations. And like, but I have these classes that sort of are analogous to Vuex modules. So it's like, mm-hmm. what am I even using Vuex for? Like, can I just, 
take this to his logical conclusion and just have plain classes that have state that I can pass into my into my um, components and just just deal with it like that way. Like just have a real honest to God, you know, <laughs> class structure and just forget about Vuex entirely because I'm not using actions. I'm not using getters, right? I'm not using um, any of the other niceties that Vuex gives you. I mean, Vuex does still give you the, you still get the time travel. You still get the developer tools and be able to, you know, trace the mutations and stuff, which is still cool and still nice. And I can browse the state pretty easily. But I don't know. It's like I'm almost at the point where maybe it just doesn't even make sense. So I might I might explore that avenue a little bit. Just see where I go. Probably just throw it out. But it's interesting to think about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so the only re- the only thing that we're using Vuex for right now in Design Collective is uh, like filtering and, and things that have to do with the URL and parameters that come in. Uh, so we kind of have like, uh, abstracted the, the param parsing and things like that to build out search filters in the UI. So that's all done with Vuex because there are a number of different components that need to rely on that information. So we might have like a search bar at the top of the page, and then we might have like a floating search bar that has some filters available and those might subscribe. They might need the same changes. Um, or they might need to see, to, to do the same work on the parameters and setting up filters and things like that. So when you load a page, do you, cause you have to fetch when you're fetching stuff from the, the, the GraphQL endpoint or wh- whatever rest endpoint, are you just using async data or are you using, are you putting it into Vuex? Uh, most of it's just async data. Okay. Yeah, most of it. So there are other things that we use Vuex for, uh, which Paul has done more recently because the UI is getting a little more complicated in places, especially in terms of filtering and sorting and stuff. Uh, and like I, I haven't written JavaScript since the last time we recorded still. So it's going on a month now, I think. I've just been pure Elixir. Um, but yeah, so basically how that works is most things are async data except for... Um, when things boot up, we can get uh, the parameters and, and things like that. And so that way, what we do is we parse those and put those into some sort of like filter object maybe. So like that could be like room IDs or category or tag IDs. It could be a keyword. It could be, you know, just filtering parameters that you would use for a search. And that all kind of lives in one spot. There are a couple of places where we have like product searches uh, living there. Uh, and that's really just for UI pieces again, that might be reactive to product changes, but aren't necessarily living within one container or they're not using the same container all the time, because if they were, then we wouldn't need a store for that. We could just put it in the container, but, uh, we don't really use Vuex for a ton of things. Most things that just have their own kind of container. So if it, since we're using Nuxt, each page has its own sort of container as a page component, right? So, depending on the page that you're on, a lot of times we just have uh, data being being there and then we we push it through props as we need to. Right, so with, with Nuxt, with the, even with server-side rendering, the, the Vuex store sticks around even after, after the initial page load. So as the user navigates around, right, the store is still persisted, right? Because you're still on the, technically on the same yep. page as far as the browser is concerned. But... For your case, you're just throwing out that data and reloading it anyways. So just using async data. So that's fine, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, other things are there too. So like the current session information and the current order goes in the Vuex store because that's used all over the place. So that information goes there. But I mean, once 
once you get into once once you get the first page load, the view store is gonna just sit there. It's not gonna go away when you navigate away because we're you know it's a single page application, so it's gonna stay stick around. Uh, just it's just that it lives there, and so whatever component needs to use it uses it. That's all. I'm also using Vuex for this really cool package called Vuex Persisted State, and oh, it's yeah. <laughs> it's really dumb how simple and effective it is. So you just configure it, you point it at your store, you set it as a Vuex plugin. Let me see if I can find it here. Yeah, you create a Vue plugin and it hooks in your store and you just give it a bunch of paths. And basically I'm just using it to persist basic user preferences. So for example, in the chat window, there's a little checkbox. It's like, do you want to play the sound when someone sends you a message or do you not want to play the sound if someone sends messages? It's just a Boolean. And uh, that's stored in Vuex, <laughs> and I set it to persist it. So when they refresh the page, it just stores it in local storage, and it just populates it right from local storage. So like it was zero work to get uh, persisted, you know, things like user preferences and stuff. And in fact, if you really wanted to take it a step further, you could store the entire state of the application. And so next time they load the page, uh, they it doesn't you don't get a screen flash right you get the last state that the console was in and then maybe like the updates roll in gradually i haven't tried that but it's cool to think about for like zero work you get you get a sort of long lived uh, vuex state oh it's weird yeah that's uh, i've looked at that i haven't really needed to do anything with it yet uh because you know we're, well i i actually just pulled open the store file my the main index like the main module for a vuex store and I don't, there's not a, like a lot in, ter- in the way of like preferences and things like that, user settings. But we do store, like I said, like uh, information about the current session, the current user. Um, we filter notifications through, so like toast notifications, and we're just using Vuex for that. Uh, that because that way it's just easy to to pop a new notification. If any component that needs to do it, you know, you just pull in the action. You could cache with um. You could cache the user's uh, location there too if you wanted and persist that. We do actually. Okay. So I think we're using. Oh, I'd have to look at it now. This all seems so weird to me now. <laughs> looking at this, uh, we're doing other. Yeah, so we're like storing. If they if they choose to give us a zip code or something, we do that. Um, we store let's let's see here there was something very oh yeah so another cool thing that we do is we store actually um like the the window dimensions and how far the user has scrolled so that's actually been kind of useful for uh display logic for mobile versus desktop things so anytime the d- display changes dimension the view store is updated so that's it's always kind of hanging out there um, you also, we also have a thing called like a scroll lock. So if we need to lock the screen from scrolling via some sort of modal or something like that, uh, we can do that through Vuex as well, which is kind of nice. Uh, so there's like a lot of little utility things that we have in there. Um, but nothing really as intense, I think is, is what you had going on. Yeah. I read a really great article once that basically said, I'll see if I can find it for the show notes, but basically the article said Vuex is great for a lot of things things but there's no reason to force putting your whole application into there if it doesn't make sense you know components they have their own state like that's okay it doesn't need to live globally somewhere especially if you're only using it in one place uh things that make sense to be globally available and you want to bind to really easily and other stuff has to depend on yeah that makes sense 
but it doesn't have to be so cut and dry like oh we're using a, a global store we you know we have to put everything in it like no that doesn't that's if you get out of that mindset and just put stuff where it makes sense that's you know that sounds like that's what you're doing you're you're using that for stuff that that you need everywhere right and the individual components and pages you know nux takes care of that for you so no need to go crazy with that i think that makes a lot of sense yeah so i mean what you just said is exactly what uh the the Vuex doc actually say on the homepage. If you go to Vuex.vuejs.org at the bottom, there's a there's a spot called When Should I Use It, and it, it says although Vuex helps us deal with shared state management, it also comes with the cost of more concepts and boilerplate. It's a trade off between um, short term and long term productivity, uh, but also I think Redux actually says this too, something similar to this. But it, uh, Vuex says if you've never built a large scale spa and jump right into Vuex, it may feel verbose and daunting. Um, and then it says, if your app is simple, you mo- you will most likely find be fine without Vuex, and a simple store pattern may be all you need. And they actually link to a um, an article on uh, the Vue.js docs that actually shows you how to create a simple uh, store setup. I might just steal this and just put this right in my little component classes and be done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I just sent it to you, right? But that's really all it is. It's just an object. And you just pass that object into whatever components need access to that. It's pr- pretty, pretty simple. So enough about front end stuff. Tell me about what's going on over in DK land. Uh, lots of regrets and sorrow. Oh, no. And no, it's not that oh, bad. Oh, it looks like it's, all the time we got for today. <laughs> I just, yeah, I just try you hear me like fall to the floor. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's good. I... So I I love Elixir. I love the language. I love most everything about it. The only thing that gets to me sometimes is that the ecosystem isn't as mature as, say, Ruby. And I think maybe one case I've heard uh, repeated a few times is... Uh, for example, the lack of like an official, uh, officially supported Stripe library. <laughs> so there's a few out there, and I mean, I'm not trying to hate on these people because they've they've done a lot of work, and I'm using their library. But there's one called Stripe Stripe, and version one was a thing, and then it got a new maintainer, and they completely rewrote it. And so we're using version one, and there are just some. Uh, just some things that I would like to do that I can't with version one. And I can't upgrade to version two because there's some things lacking that I actually need that we're doing with version one. <laughs> so uh, a key point here would be uh, I'm, re- I'm reworking. So we're introducing the idea of companies uh, because we have some stores that want to list multiple locations or have multiple stores. And so we're introducing the idea of companies. So a company will have multiple stores. And so that way we can just charge per seat uh, for that to the company. And so the company gets one invoice. They have one primary payment source. It's just easier for everyone to, to manage. It's just the right way to set things up. So what I'm doing is I'm writing a bunch of migrations that actually, uh, they actually set up, like they change the database into how I need it to be. So, you know, a store belongs to a company and, and all that stuff. And I'm also had to move like subscription information. So we store like subscription ID and Stripe customer IDs and stuff like that in our database. And so I had to move all that stuff onto the company table. And then I also had to run, run some code that would go to Stripe, fetch some information. So that way I could set some more information on the stores table. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, it's a whole thing, right? So 
there's a lot of changes here and obviously I'm wanting to test all of it because that's one thing I've been doing is just TDD everything. If I touch code, I write a test for it. Uh, it's been harder, but I've been trying to do it. And at the very least, if there's a bug, tests go go in for the bug, no, no matter what. That's kind of like the rule at Design Collective. Um, so yeah, I've been working on writing tests and I've been using a library called Bypass uh, for testing external services with Elixir. And the only thing that is required uh, to be able to use bypass is that you need to be able to say, use this endpoint instead of that endpoint or use this URL instead of that URL. Well, uh, version one up to 1.6 of Stripey Stripe doesn't allow you to change the endpoint URLs. So there's no way I can actually bypass a real Stripe call. Yeah. I mean, are they even maintaining that version one anymore? Like it's still updating it. Do you know? Probably not. Right. Yep. Or are they? They are. Oh, okay. I was going to yeah. say like, I had an issue where I was using, I was playing with uh, Chargebee, which is a recurring billing solution thing. And they had a, someone had written a library that was kind of semi-abandoned and didn't have all the features that I wanted. So I just copied the whole source code into my application and just added the stuff I needed. <laughs> I was, I'm a bad open sources and I didn't even fork it or anything. I just, I just copied it and put it in there. Um, but yeah, I you, mean, I thought about, I thought about it not even using Stripey Stripe because for maybe a quarter of the Stripe calls we have to make, I can't use Stripe Stripe 4, so I'm just using HTTP Poison and doing the call myself. That's, there's nothing wrong with that as long as, you know, you don't have too, too many of those, right? Like, your interactions with Stripe are pretty straightforward, I think. I don't know. They're pretty they're pretty straightforward. And even then, I could simply create a small shim. That's not, That wouldn't be that hard to do. And, yeah, so I, yeah, I bumped the version today and just was like, how many tests fail? And there was a good number. And most of it was like Stripe, Stripe one is like Stripe.customer. So the resources uh, are pluralized. And on, on Stripe Stripe version two, the resources are singular. So Stripe.customer, Stripe.charge instead of charges, for example. So that caused the majority of them. But also a bunch of the other tests were failing because Stripe, the Stripe library version two kind of normalized how they accept arguments. So it's usually some resource ID in the first position and then a map uh, which would you know be equivalent to an object that would be sent to Stripe, and the third would be a keyword list of options, which is pretty standard for a library, I think. Well, Stripe version one is not even anywhere near that sort of functioning signature. So, um, yeah, I was like, this isn't happening right now. Yeah. So you just kind of stuck on one point oh and just kind of or one point x and just kind of add on, patch on stuff as you needed, I guess. Locally. Yeah. yeah. And it's really not even that huge of a deal, to be honest, because things work in like, so the checkout flow, like none of the purchasing stuff has to change at all, which is, which is great. So really the only thing that was changing was, uh, so with, with Stripe you have, they actually just not that recently, but pretty recently changed how the billing works. They like introduced a new billing thing. So some of the terminology is a little bit weird, like back and forth in their docs, but so we have a subscription. So a company will have a single subscription. And if our company has two stores, there's one subscription there. And then that subscription might contain two what Stripe calls subscription items. Uh, you could also call them um, products. I think I'd have to refer to the docs. Like I said, we're actually on an older Stripe API version because technical debt. And uh, so I'm having to try to reconcile the newer terminology with what I can use. But 
for our our version, our purposes, Stripe subscriptions have subscription items, which is essentially a line item that points to a plan. So if you have one store and you want to add a second store at a certain plan, you click a button. What we do is we create a new Stripe item in the Stripe um, side of things, which you, you, that basically just changes the amount that you owe every month. It just like kind of like adding a seat, I suppose. And on our side, we store on companies, we store the subscription ID and on stores, we store the subscription item ID. Yeah. So that's what I've been working on is kind of doing the data massaging to, to get that worked out. So that ended up being five different migrations to do things kind of like incrementally. And what I did was I just pulled down a database dump and dropped my database, imported it and ran the migrations three times in a row just because I was paranoid about that <laughs> stuff. And we're good uh, so far. But yeah, so that's what it's that's what I've been doing is just trying to figure out how can I actually test this. I mean, like, so Stripe isn't rate limiting us so hard. In fact, I don't think we've run into any rate limits. So, I mean, I could have automated tests running and actually be really interacting with the Stripe API. Obviously, that's not ideal, but I don't really have a choice at the moment. So I think having some tests there that actually hit Stripe's test API is better than not having anything. Yeah, I remember that was one of the big issues that they were trying to tackle with Stripey Stripe 2 was the testing piece. Mm-hmm. And last I checked, it was no they couldn't really decide on on the best way to do it or to implement the library in such a way that it could be tested easily. So yeah, I mean that's an interesting concern to think about as a library author, right? Absolutely. As to it's, how, like, how do people? It's super hard because everyone has a, their own way for, for doing it and their own rationale, right? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, so some people use like a VCR type setup where it records um, interactions and then it saves the the payload and information in like JSON or something, so you can actually just replay that back. Some people use mocks, so there's not actually any sort of real API call happening. You're just kind of stubbing things out, like saying, uh, just automatically respond with this payload. I actually, I think I mentioned it earlier, but I like this library called Bypass made by um, PSP PDF Kit Labs. And it's somewhere, so it's not like VCR and it's not necessarily like mocking. And I could put some articles as to the, the pluses and minuses of each of those approaches. But what I like about Bypass is that in my test, what I do is you, you kind of start bypass and you say, okay, um, here, if, if most of your uh, requests use some sort of like environment variable, so like a base API URL for Stripe, so that way you can configure it with a, um, with a, what am I trying to think of, an environment variable that allows you to kind of swap out the URL. And so what happens is when, you, when the test makes a request, it makes a request to the bypass URL instead of the live URL. And so when that happens, you can use bypass to expect uh, certain things. And what's really cool is you can actually expect on um, down to like the parameters that are sent to the endpoint. So you could say, I expect that a post request hits this specific URL with this specific items. And then you actually respond with what you want to yourself. So I might actually just copy a response from Stripe and say, if the actual assertions pass that this endpoint or this this function sending the, the data that I want to the endpoint, then this endpoint will send this back. So you can test that you're sending what you need to to the API, and then you can test that you're responding with how you need to respond after a successful response from the API. So you can also do things like on a certain test, 
um, force a 500 response or force a 403 response back to your your uh, functions, and then that way you can actually know exactly how you're going to account for those situations. So bypass itself is a it's a local it's a local HTTP server that's plug based that runs when your test runs, and basically is that basically what's happening. Oh, yeah, interesting. That's, okay. That's, it's supposed to be building a little Sinatra server. <laughs> basically, yeah, but it's super easy. And I found that, like, I've always kind of struggled with ex- testing external APIs. Like, VCR always seemed like a lot of maintenance to me. Um, and mocking, uh, same thing. I was like, this doesn't, it feels weird to kind of like make all this stuff fake, right? And you're not really testing, you're not necessarily testing what you're sending. Cause I think to me, that's the most important thing is, is what I'm sending to Stripe the correct thing. Am I doing the correct thing with this information? Am I, am I formatting the payload a certain way? So for example, uh, with our UShip integration, I think that's the first time I've said their name, but yeah, the shipping partner we're using is UShip. Uh, I'm using bypass to test their quote unquote test their API. But, but what I mean is that I like, I, the, the parameters that they expect from me are very, very specific. And it doesn't necessarily fail in a nice manner. It's not super helpful (laughs) when it does fail. So I had to write a lot of tests to make sure that things are formatted a very, very specific way. And Bypass made that really easy for me. It's cool because the, again, I'm looking at the the demo code in the the readme. And it's cool because it's right in line with your normal test. It's not like some extra process that has to live somewhere. And you have to keep track of things in two different places. Yeah. It's all it's all in line, but really it's it's an async web request. It's interesting. Yeah, because when I'm talking about mocks, I'm talking about people would actually create full on modules and and basically stub out all this this stuff in a different module. So I was like, well, how are you going to test that stuff? Right. That's like it's basically you know? like a dependency injection, right? You just in the test you pass in the mock, and in the real world you pass in the real thing, and they're exactly not, they're not the same. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so for me, bypass felt like a really good functional alternative where it, it, you're right, it's just kind of like a little mini route definition in your test. And so you just say, it's cool because you can say, I expect this to happen only once or I expect this to happen. You don't care how many times it happens. So, I mean, you can you can throw any case you want at yourself. So if you're looking at the examples, if you look at like, uh, I guess any of them, expect for, expect underscore once slash four, uh, they're sending back a rate limit exceeded error to to themselves. So it makes it really easy, but also makes it really um, transparent uh, to see how things are going on and and see what you're actually testing because it's not hidden in another module somewhere. It's just all right there and pretty pretty easy to see, pretty plain English, I think. That's cool. I dig it. If I actually wrote tests, I would probably use it. Uh, so... <laughs> But that's that's been my life is is um thinking about Stripe and testing it. I think we just lost some viewers, some listeners there. <laughs> hey, we speak the hard truth here. You better be writing your tests because I know, I know, I should. You, if you don't, I know, I know. You you only have yourself to blame when it's fi- a Friday and it's five o'clock p.m. <laughs> you know what's uncanny? What's completely just wild is any 
I've actually been conducting an experiment. Um, every time I say, hey, I'm about to head out, that's when the bug reports come in. <laughs> or that's when an actual bug happens is right around 10, 15 minutes after I say, hey, I'm about to leave. Every t- Like Paul was like, this is uncanny. He noticed it the other day because I'd be like, hey, everyone, I'm headed out to jujitsu now. I'd get in the car, my phone would blow up. So I'd be super stressed out because I'm not, you know, I'm not on a computer. I'm going to somewhere where I can't be on a computer. I can't fix a problem for at least an hour and a half or so. You know what I mean? You should do what I do and be always be stressed out and always carry your computer everywhere for that one time because <laughs> I have done yeah, that I, do. I have done that I actually went out to breakfast uh one time with a friend of mine who's uh also a computer you know developer and geek and halfway to breakfast uh my phone was blown up with, with alerts from AWS and Slack and I so I texted him ahead of time like, "Hey, when we get there, can I use your computer to like an SSH in our servers?" <laughs> Did that over breakfast? Yeah, not a great place. To I do be. usually have a backpack on me with my computer in it just in case. Yeah. Kind of like on call. Like I can't always expect Paul to respond to things. He's just on the West Coast, so he's always around when that happens. But so what I did was I started saying an hour early. Hey, I'm leaving uh, later. Is usually what I say. Or I'm using. I'm leaving in a bit. I leave it like I don't say I'm leaving around X time. You know, yeah. and since I've been doing that, uh, the bugs don't roll in then, and I don't know why. It's weird, but uh, but uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you mentioned earlier about losing listeners. Uh, <laughs> I am really interested in any feedback that anyone has for me today around testing and testing external APIs and doing things that way. Uh, check out Bypass if you haven't. Uh, let me know what you think about it. Let me know what you think about mocks. Do you think I'm doing things wrong? Just, I, I don't know. I want to hear something because I don't know what I'm doing out here. I'm just trying to make it easy on myself. He's just a poor old musician trying to make his way through life, people. I was just trying to pay off my student loans, which I did, by the way, this year. They're, my student loans are gone. Oh. So maybe I can get back into living on couches again. I don't know. Well, uh, if you want to hit us up on Twitter, we've got uh, DNC Show is the official podcast Twitter. Uh, Sean is Sean Washbot, and I am Shrockwell. We're pretty active on there. Yeah, fairly active. Um, we have our own site at dnc.show. That's usually where we put show notes. Uh, I've been trying to work on it, but I haven't had the motivation recently. So help me become motivated by going to the site and checking out the show <laughs> notes there. And uh, of course, we have a discussion, as always, for each episode over on spectrum.chat. That's the top level domain. It's .chat where we have a, a channel for the podcast as well as channels for Elixir, Nuxt, View, any kind of other stuff you want to talk about as well as other podcasts on the Spec Network. We got your Fortnite channels. Oh, boy. We got your PUBG channels. Oh, boy. I haven't been to that one in a while. We've got your, I don't know, there's lots of channels there. Check them out. There's also job boards too, though. If you go to spec.fm slash jobs, you've been looking for a job or thinking about moving jobs, uh, check that out because it helps the, the network out and we would also like you to have a job that you enjoy doing. Well, I think that about does it. So we will uh, talk to you next week. See you later, Sean. See you, man. Thanks again to DigitalOcean for sponsoring today's episode of Does Not Compute. DigitalOcean really is the easiest cloud platform to run and scale your applications. Visit do.co slash does not to sign up and receive that $100 of free credit towards your next application. Again, $100 towards DigitalOcean's effortless administration tools, robust compute, storage, and networking services. One-click app installs, so you even get monitoring and alerting services, so you can sleep well knowing that your application is running a okay <laughs>